Pete Zuccarini is an underwater cinematographer and native Floridian who is known for shooting big-budget feature movies, some of which include Pirates of the Caribbean, Life of Pi, The Hunger Games, Spider-Man, Suicide Squad, Jurassic World, Terminator Salvation, Spring Breakers, The Beach Bum, Into the Blue, as well as TV shows like Ballers on HBO, Breaking Bad, Bloodline, He's filmed commercials for brands like Dior, Armani, Sandals Resorts, Bud Light, Adidas, Levi's, Visa, and the U.S. Navy. Today, we met up with Pete at his home in Key Biscayne, and he took us around Biscayne Bay, where he grew up diving and flats fishing, and where he first started doing underwater photography and film. So I grew up on Key Biscayne, which is connected by a bridge to Miami. So it's, it's really um, more a suburb of Miami than anything, uh, right. even though geologically, if you look at a, a map, it would look like the, kind of the beginning of the Florida Keys. Growing up in this area, this is kind of your first adventure, like Soldier's Key, Ragged 1, 2, 3, Boca Chita Sands, Elliott, and then a few more islands on to North Key Largo. You know, in our small boats, we would like two of us get in the water, one stay in the boat, and we would drift with our Hawaiian slings and spear some snapper and things in the channels. And then after we'd catch a few fish, uh, we would stop for lunch. And then when the tide would turn, we'd, we'd clean our fish and we'd have like a few heads and things left over and we'd hang them off the boat. And when the tide would turn, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply turn back out the water would get kind of funky and green not so pleasant for diving and sharks would come in that patrol this area and out in the ocean and in our little boats we'd have giant sharks coming up the back of the boat we didn't really have a purpose for them we just liked seeing them so when we'd clean our fish we'd hang the fish so the sharks would come by right and then we would just take pictures and scream at them (laughs) because it was it was exciting to see them it was definitely my early exposure to uh to being fascinated by sharks, you know, having yeah. a 14 foot boat and a 14 foot hammerhead nosing at the back of it, trying to like a you know, bite off a mangrove snapper head. <clears throat> that just transitioned into taking taking photos and jumping yeah. in the water. So eventually, um, when I was you know about 11 years old, I used uh, I wanted to get an underwater camera, and my dad was like, "Well, you know, how are you going to do that?" Yeah. <laughs> so. I, my dad was made a good deal for me, but it was a, maybe a better deal for him. He said, "I'll buy you a lawnmower, and then you can make money, so you can buy your own, you know, your underwater camera, mowing people's lawns on the island." So, and and then for him to pay for the lawnmower, I had to mow our lawn basically for the rest of my life. <laughs> so it was like a good deal for him too. What kind of camera did you get? I bought a Pentax K1000 and an Ike Light housing. Okay. And that was my first camera, and I shot. 
a lot with that, with a 28 millimeter lens. And I learned a lot about underwater photography in those days. Like, so how does someone like you, like, how do you get started in a world like this? I mean, obviously there's a point where anyone picks up a video camera, but like, from, to go from there to where you are, it's like you've reached the, the summit of what someone can achieve <laughs> as, a, as a filmmaker. Well, I don't know about, I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there, I know that there's some people out there doing some beautiful stuff with wildlife, which is where I started, that uh, you know may or may not be interested in narrative features, which is what I've been doing mostly the last few years. But um, I think I've just been really um, blessed and focused on honing my craft of understanding how to tell stories with cameras underwater and it's really you know filmmaking is inherently a collaborative medium so it's really about good communication with directors and directors of photography and performers to get it all together and make it make something cool and you must film like like what five to six movies a year something like that um yeah i do probably uh on average i do probably five or six movies a year and one of them will be water like have a lot of water so five or six movies that have a water scene and then one movie that has a significant water component so like in years past to say a pirates of the caribbean has a lot of water but then i might do films like uh into the wild that have a water scene in them or uh motorcycle diaries that has a water scene in it but then come back to uh, a film like in the heart of the sea or uh, Life of Pi that has a significant water component to it, which would take up a a portion of my year. Sometimes I might do a scene that only requires a day or two in a tank or the ocean, and other times it's two weeks, sometimes it's two months, or uh, sometimes it's a year. On Breaking Bad, how how much (laughs) did you actually film of that? Was it like a pool scene? I just went into a pool and filmed that little... The she falls in? Yeah, a little teddy bear floating around that became a little a motif throughout that I happened actually I, I did that scene just because I happened to be in uh, New Mexico where they were shooting when I was working on uh, Terminator Salvation how chaotic is is your life having to travel like it seems like you don't stay in one spot for very long you have to like go from 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 Florida to freaking Colombia to California like well, I'm, ba- I'm based in Key Biscayne, Florida, which is an island connected to Miami through a causeway. Um, but it's a lot of travel for water work. You know, you usually do some ocean or river location and then go back to a studio to do close-ups, uh, pieces that you didn't get in the natural location, or maybe they want to do a performance with an actor that wasn't available to go through a rapid river or something. Right. You know, so it's commonly like you know doing stunts first working out the action in the in the wild place and then coming back to a studio water body somewhere to do more controlled light and performance right out of all those movies you've done what is like your most memorable or craziest experience that you ever had when i I worked on a film called uh diarios de motocicleta which is uh, a story about uh, Che Guevara that uh, that um, was set in the Amazonian Peru. Walter Salas was the director. Um, uh, 
Gabriel Garcia Bernal was the lead. And I get a call from my uh, friend of mine who's a producer saying, we've got uh, the director insists that we swim at night across the part of the Amazon that Che Guevara actually swam across. And all the locals that are helping them with their water safety are saying it's basically impossible that it's I'm not going to say haunted, but basically those are the kind of language that was being used. That it's just a death trap, and uh, they were they had some very unusual ideas about trying to like rope off the river. But there's like 20,000 pound trees floating down the river. When, you know, when the Amazon swells from a rain, it, it pulls part of the bank down into the water. In fact, the week before we shot, it pulled half of our set homes into the water, and uh, I was tasked with figuring out how to get the actor swimming in this real part of the river section and uh, it's kind of funny because I had just finished a wildlife show about a, a mother alligator in a remote part of Florida and I had a great uh, herpetologist that had been working in this part of Peru and I knew they'd come back from there so I got his guidance on a few things you know we reviewed sort of checking for drag outs from crocodilians and piranha are, are not nocturnal so we didn't have to worry about those so there was this little fish that was rumored to be able to swim up your urethra that is like a, a legendary you know painful and damaging thing oh, so yeah. then I had another friend who had been a bush uh, doctor down in that area he had worked in like you know like Doctors Without Borders kind of program and he gave me some guidance on some type of snail that lays eggs that get on you when you're in the standing water and that if you let them sit on you for more than 24 hours they'll like burrow in your skin and eat your cartilage but all but there was a there was a, a solution for every one of these calamities and I and I went down there sort of armed with the whole quiver of uh of uh, protective measures and um we got the scene of him swimming across the river and then swimming up onto this muddy bank and all the lepers from the leper colony come down and pull them out of the mud. And it's a, a beautiful scene. It was really a, a great experience. And I was uh, one of two Americans on the project. There was a special effects department from Italy. There was a, a stunt team from France. There was like people from all over the world. It was, and we were all living in this remote hotel in the Amazon uh, area of Peru, about two hours boat ride from Iquitos. And uh, you know, sometimes the biggest uh, box office films are not necessarily the, the most, you know, phenomenal work experiences. Sometimes really? they are. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they're great experiences. Like on Life of Pi, um, Ang Lee is like a true Artur. I mean, he everything has to be as he imagines it. There was a scene where the main character, uh, Pi, has to. You know, he's they're crossing. Uh, a, a big ocean crossing with their family and their whole zoo in the hold, all the animals. And he goes out for like a starlight walk on the deck. And he goes out on deck, and at first it's like very invigorating. He goes, a spray is hitting him in the face, and he starts looking out the open ocean. And then he looks forward and he sees that uh, this is a really heavy duty storm surge, like this giant swells washing over the bow and he sees people getting wa uh, like washed over the deck and he realizes they're in an emergency so he has to run back into the boat and go down three flights of stairs and when he
gets back to where he came from, the, the last uh, companionway that he walks through is underwater. And Aang, because the film has so many fantastical elements, you know, very painterly elements, a lot of things that are that are uh, animated and sort of surreal and hyperreal, because there's so much fantasy in the film, he wanted the photography to be super real, meaning that even though they're going to paint in all of these glorious things, that the actual actor in the camera will have a very accurate photographic relationship. Right. So there won't be just cuts or, uh, or, or computer-generated dissolves. He wanted the actor to, to run down three flights of stairs, go underwater, come back, and go back underwater in one take which was about a minute long, but it's a 3D camera in an underwater housing that weighed about 200 pounds. So going down three flights of stairs at full speed with a teenager and then diving underwater and coming out is very technically challenging. If you watch the film, it looks very uh, fluid and seamless, like someone was running with a GoPro that was smooth, but it's a 200-pound 3D native rig. How long did it take to get that shot? Well, we started off, you know, looking at the set and, and realized it was impossible, you know, to move the camera through without supporting the sheer weight of the camera with some type of system from above. So we had to, we, well, it took about seven days to get the shot, if you include having to redesign the set, because we had to, I'd run down the stairs with the camera suspended on a sliding track and a bungee, and then as I took my step off the last flight of stairs, it, the, the stairs would fly away. The grips rigged it phenomenally. And then the next set, it swung away. And then the final step, I have to like go full speed. And we had just worked through all the move. Then that camera has to get pulled underwater, floated back up, and pulled back underwater. Because to have a buoyant 200-pound camera and a camera that can sink, that's, that creates its own sets of challenges. Right. So we had just walked through the whole process and we get a note that Aang wants to try it right now. And we had just like done it with baby steps. So, you know, we did a take. And of course, he was like, faster, faster. And then on the third take, it was, I, I said, we can go a lot faster, but it's a 200 pound camera. It's like a wrecking ball. If he slips or anything, this camera's just gonna mow him down. It's just, it's too much inertia, even though we have it supported. And the stunt coordinator had been working with Sudaj, the actor, said he can do it. You know, he's very confident. He's moving down the steps great. So he went full speed. I went full speed. Dove in after him. The feet disappear in the bubbles. He pops back up. And we thought we had a pretty good pass, our third take, after working it out for seven days. And I came up and I said, what did Aang think? And they said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? They said, he, he left. He left the studio. He went over back to the other stage to work on for, with first unit. And uh, we later found out that, you know, it, we got it. But it was the, the movie was so, Aang was so focused on getting what he had in his mind and moving on to the next thing that he just, like, wandered over back to his other set and kept working. Uh, later, late... you to get the shot? No, I mean, we got it. He watched it. Then he just, we went. But it was very anticlimactic for our team because we had been working so hard. For, right. We literally rebuilt the whole set around our grip process so that we could move the camera through this space, and then uh, before you guys could even and then uh, he was gone. yeah, knowing knowing that you got it was him moving on to the next shot, which is not unusual with uh, with uh, sort of auteur directors that are just laser focused on on uh, illustrating their vision. 
You also did uh, Spring Breakers and uh, and the Beach Pop with Harmony Creek. What was it like working with him? We're, we're very fortunate to have a filmmaker like Harmony because he's one of those filmmakers that I, I couldn't say, I didn't ask him this directly, but right. he, he has, uh, uh, you know, edgy stories he wants to tell, you know, that deal with sex and drugs and growing up and things that are awkward for people to deal with that are right on the, you know, things that are not legal, things that, that a lot of people and studios shy away from. Right. Harmony is fearless. He takes it on the way he sees it. And just to be around filmmakers like that is fantastic because so much of our industry can, you know, as at risk for getting watered down, you know, for commercial success. I think he just makes the film as he wants to make it. And I feel really lucky to have been part of a couple of his projects. How close do you guys work together? Like, how close do you guys communicate when you're shooting? I don't know how much of the movie you actually shot. Oh, I didn't do very much for okay. either of his films. Okay. Just quick scenes. There's a, a, a two-on-one sex scene in a swimming pool and a conversation in a swimming pool. It's a handful of swimming pool scenes that I did in, in Spring Breakers that had dialogue and some, you know, a sex scene with James Franco and Vanessa Hudgens. And... Yeah. and uh, once, I, I mean, I'm, I feel very fortunate as a niche water specialist. When I, my scene, uh, even if it's a small scene for the film, is usually super important, or they wouldn't be spending time putting right. people underwater, bringing in my team. And so, in that moment, the director is, you know, he, he's working with me one on one to work through uh, how to optimize the the water for the shot, and it's very rewarding. Uh, it's, it's my favorite part of the job, really, is getting to meet these super talented directors. His vision is very pure in the sense that uh, he's making, he, he aligns himself with producers that allow him to make the film that he intends to make, and, right. and that's re really refreshing. I just came off of a film uh, from a, f a filmmaker you, you, you probably won't have heard of, but you probably will in the future, named Alejandro Landes a Colombian filmmaker who made a film called Monos, which is uh, teenage Colombian revolutionaries uh, holding a, a, a American woman who's like an engineer hostage uh, in Colombia and taking orders from like their revolutionary sort of adult supervision. And it's sort of a Lord of the Flies meets uh, uh, very difficult political scenarios that exist in, in you know, countries like Colombia that still have ongoing battles between uh, you know, extreme extremists from both sides. Wow. And uh, I think when you see this, and they got this uh, uh, Mika Levy who's like a super talented uh, DJ musician to do the score. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a film called Under the Skin. It's a film that... Uh, she did that she's the sound design and, and music it takes it into like it, it doesn't feel like a story set in any particular time period it's very much a fable really really, really wonderful and the locations are just stunning these mountain tops where you're up above the clouds and they found and then uh, there's a rapid river flowing through a really dense Colombian rainforest it's really phenomenal locations to set this story 
another thing about when you mentioned the soundtrack, like when it comes to harmony films, the soundtracks, like some of the segments are like music videos. Oh yeah, it's like multiple music videos. No, Spring Breakers was really innovative that way. Super cool. When I first started, you know, many years ago now, I did uh, all documentaries, uh, and I did wildlife uh, programs on sharks and alligators and uh, ecosystems, and then. I got into some uh, shooting of commercials and IMAX films and then movies. Uh, now, because I really, you know, because I'm a, a water person, I love the ocean, I love everything that lives in the ocean. Uh, I don't, the, a year doesn't go by that I don't contribute to someone's documentary story that's taking on uh, issues ranging from, uh, you know, as, acidification of the ocean from too much co2 to, to too much plastic entering the ocean i mean there's always uh marine mammal captivity there's there's so many issues that are important to me having grown up in the sea and I mean, most underwater filmmakers or underwater camera people uh, have a lot of uh concern and almost sadness seeing how quickly things have changed and everyone feels responsible to contribute to that uh, if you have skills uh, in media then you, you want to devote a certain amount of your year uh, to really using that to get the message out of things that uh, you know, media for change you know, media that can help change things for the better I always have used the mangroves as sort of like a... I mean, from a practical standpoint, it's kind of like a good testing ground for like when I'm looking at new cameras and lenses and equipment. Right. It's always been sort of like a... like a meditative space for me, mangroves. It's like... Uh, it's like a default place I go to be like when I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing next like just to go it's like in a way it's like my nursery ground like they always talk about the mangroves as a nursery ground for fish because you know there's baby snapper and lobster and, and grouper and all those little things in there but I grew up snorkeling around the mangroves and if I have any kind of underwater homing instinct it's to the mangroves really yeah like I grew up learning like and the spookiest thing you ever see when you're a child is swimming underneath the roots in the darkness and a light shaft revealing like a giant snapper face right, right. with teeth. Yeah. So like my earliest childhood memories of like dealing with the mystery and unknown of being underwater mm -hmm. is being in that sort of dark light shaft lit environment of the mangroves where you never knew which face would appear. Right, right. And it's gotten even more interesting now because when I was a kid, you know, there were only 200 American crocodiles. Crocodiles need to have like a beach that's undisturbed to, to feel confident uh, nesting and laying eggs. Okay. So they created that down at the Turkey Point Power Plant, and, the, and as a result, the, the crocodiles have come back. You, you know, uh, I don't know how dangerous they would be for people. Uh, obviously, I would give them respect because, you know, a, a big crocodile is... Is a big crocodile. Is, yeah, I mean, it's a crocodile. <laughs> right. So they're moving both directions. They're coming my way and your way on the west coast of Florida. Well, I'm sure you're going to start seeing crocodiles up where you live at some point. 
And there could be a crocodile here. You know, when you, you shoot for a really long time, you do tend to like, you know, maybe, depending on your definition, but you maybe do too much of it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're you know, doing it full, it starts as a hobby and becomes a profession. You're shooting all the time, so yeah. Like I'd love to jump in the water with nothing in my yeah. hand. Yeah, and I do do that. Yeah. And, uh, and some of my best experiences have been doing that. Um, but the, the balance, it's, a, it's always a balancing, like how much of what you're doing that you enjoy doing. But in the last year and a half, uh, I was shooting like five days a week for 14 months straight for a great project, but someone else's project. Right. So when I had some time off, uh, I was sort of torn between just not touching a camera because I had a camera in my hand so much or just craving like doing some photography that got me invested in you know in some of my own like full creative freedom yeah just to have creative freedom and do my own thing because i'm you know i'm very loyal like as a as a crew person i you know like i serve the the artur like if there's a director i'm all like i don't do anything but think about how to make that movie better when i'm on it okay i don't take like nothing's for me it's all for like making the movie better and if you don't have that attitude you're like it's so it's so hard to make great stuff with collaborative projects like that you got to be right. like all in so when i get Full off team. yeah it, team. yeah you got it's got to be all about the movie or the director's vision any anything else you, you know you shouldn't you shouldn't have the job right i mean in my mind right um so when i get a day a week off even the weekends you're kind of still thinking about what you could do next week to make the week go better so yeah. like now that i've had a few weeks off uh I went to Columbia with my family. I brought a camera, and then there's a few times I was really glad I had it. You know, like just like coming around a corner of mangroves, and there was a giant waterfall. Yeah. And I was like, ah, this is nice. I'm never going to be here again. It's nice to capture it. Yeah. Experience it too. But you, I I was just going to show you a picture. Like uh, years ago, when I was doing a film on uh, on humpback uh, humpback whales in Tahiti, like you said, like. You know, sometimes you need to have that experience. Also, it's good for you as a filmmaker to, to, to see things a little, you know, differently without the equipment. Right, right. And um, I told my still photographer, Tim Calver, who was with me. Yeah, Tim, I remember Tim. I was like, I don't know if people really understand, like, the scale of a whale. And he was like, of course, everybody knows how big whales are. I know you but this whale was hanging out waiting for her baby was nursing she was in like 60 feet of water the baby was at the surface just going up and down she was very chill she was already kind of accustomed to us being around we weren't bothering her right and i and i and i did that picture tim shot that of me just like oh taking in the mom god dude. of the whale uh mom <sighs> waiting for the baby how deep are you right right well, there? maybe like between 60 and 70 feet but it's good for scale because there's no forced perspective. Uh, I'm just right in front of the whale, and you can see exactly how big a whale is compared to a human. Let's see what the water feels. I haven't been in the water here in a while. Yeah, it gets so warm. I think that's one of the uh, the things about Florida, creating a lot of like lifelong water people in different. I mean, like 
When you if you if you travel a lot in California and Hawaii or Tahiti where people grow up in giant surf. Right, right. When you're from Florida and you surf, you get a lot of razzing like yeah. is there even surf in Florida? Right, right. And you know, arguably compared to those places there isn't really, but People like Kelly Slater and, you know, there's a handful of uh, people we could list that have come out of Florida and gotten really into it. And I think the warm water is a factor. Yeah. And maybe, uh, like, people spend more time in the water when they're really little in Florida. Yeah. Because it's, like, yep. easier. Whereas, like, in, in California or Hawaii, it's like, it's, it's so hardcore so that only, like, the people who are really brought into it by super seasoned people get exposed to it, whereas in Florida, like, many more people are, get into the water very young because it's so uh, soothing. This area, I've seen giant sharks out there what? on these flats. Oh, yeah. There isn't, out here? On these flats, even. Yeah. Okay. Any size shark could be in these waters. How did you meet Rick O'Berry and getting involved with the um, Well, interestingly, uh, when I was a, a, a young child, Rick O'Berry was doing um, his first research projects at Mash to Point, which is right behind us here, or actually in, off in the distance there. And they, after he left Sea Aquarium, uh, they were he was sort of, I think in his sort of formative years where he really realized he was headed towards a life of commitment to activism to, to keep animals out of uh, captivity, dolphins and, and whales and orcas. Yeah, he was, he was, he was a sea aquarium dolphin uh, trainer and handler and you know, maintaining those tanks and things. And then that led to working for Rico Browning, who was uh, the head of uh, all the marine operations and dolphin training and performances for the Flipper TV series many years ago. And uh, Rick, I think, was uh, very fortunate to go along for the ride with Rico Browning, you know, who was very seasoned uh, at dealing with filmmaking and and wildlife. And I think Rick sort of learned the ropes of that. But then uh, as time went on, I think he kind of saw a darker side to what animals that are performing for our entertainment uh, what, it, what really exists there is, uh, you know, animals that are doing work for food uh, and not always uh, happily the way they might appear because, you know, right. dolphins dolphins look like they're smiling all the time, which is sort right. of, you know, a, a curse to the way their face is shaped compared to how we view that. But Rick was very committed to that. And um, actually, the way I met him was really uh, qu- quite close to here. Uh, a cove away from here, I was making my first documentary called uh, about Biscayne Bay, about the bay that we're sitting in right now. Okay. And it was I was doing a film about the history of Biscayne Bay and the current state of uh, ecology. And I and I was filming some rays and some schools of fish about half a mile from here. And all of a sudden, there's a dolphin in my lens, right up against me, looking at me right into my lens. And I'm in murky water, so it was a little stunning. Actually, it was a little scary because this big animal with his eyeball right up to me. And then he left, and he came back with a sea turtle underneath his neck, and he was, like, guiding it along. And then he, like, 
pulled it, pushed it up to my lens and kind of spun it around right in front of my lens and then stared at me like, what do you think of that? And I was like, what's going on here? Like, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm getting this footage. Like, it was like I thought I was having this breakthrough moment with dolphins. And uh, so I stayed in this cove for like three days and the dolphins were letting me film them every day. And I was like, this is crazy. And then all of a sudden someone, you know, started talking to me and they made a phone call. And it turned out these dolphins had like escaped from Ocean Reef Club. And maybe Rick O'Berry had something to do about it. I'm not really sure. So they were like trained dolphins. They were like dolphins that had been in captivity that were like out in the wild. And I just stumbled into them. I was, I had encountered them. No one really knew where they were. And then when someone talked to me about what I was doing, they called someone who knew about it. And all of a sudden, like the world descended upon my little Biscayne Bay documentary. Wow. Rick Trout showed up. Rick O'Berry showed up. Like five different dolphin activists showed up. And then the people from Ocean Reef showed up. And then they hired a big, like, old school dolphin capture team that they imported from Mobile, Alabama that had big nets and lobster boats. And I was in the middle of it all. And I was, you know, I was in my 20s, so I was kind of fearless at that time. And I wasn't afraid of legal things uh, at that point in my life without having children or any response, you know, ownership of anything. And at one point I had like the dolphins behind my boat and we were like tossing them fish to lure them away from the capture boats. And I was like on the nightly news. It was kind of a crazy thing. Anyway, Rick and I chatted and then he invited me down to go film with him when he released some dolphins that were sort of like a I, I think they had done some military work of some kind. I, I'm right. not sure their background, but I filmed him releasing some dolphins down near Key West, I think. Right. And uh, it was like clandestine, totally probably illegal, I, I guess, because he was ducking for cover at every turn. And then uh, it was, it, it, right or wrong, it was very exciting for right. me. And... Uh, some of that footage ended up getting uh, licensed and used in the Cove, which is okay. the movie about the Taiji, the Japanese Taiji Cove, Killing Cove, so and um, in the backstory of Rick O'Berry and how he came to be an activist to try and stop the Killing Cove, they used some of that footage from that first clandestine mission I went on right. with him. Like movies like like <clears throat> like the Cove and Blood Dolphin. Like, that shit is so terrible. It makes your blood boil watching it. It's just so sick. That was probably about 10 years ago to today. Has anything changed with that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes and no. So, they're, you know, Rick O'Berry and his son Lincoln, they're very much g- going after every single dolphin in captivity, basically. Yeah. So they, they pretty much pride themselves on having a database of almost every dolphin where it is and where it came from and what are the challenges to try and get it free and some of them some of some of them yeah yeah and he you know he's get at a point in his life where he doesn't give a fuck right he'll he'll make enemies he'll cross he's like a vigilante yeah he is a vigilante and you know he has a a a a reputation that some people you know don't care for him even on the activist side because he's not afraid to to cross uh, boundaries and hurt people's feelings right. uh he's he's you know he's he, he is yeah definitely kind of a, a vigilante and 
there's dolphins he can't save, like uh, dolphins that are damaged or dolphins that are in, like he was trying to get these dolphins out of Egypt and there became a lot of dangerous elements to it that were life-threatening for the people, the activists on the ground, and he had to pull out. There's things he tries for that are frustrating, you know, death threats, lawsuits all the time. I mean, you know, that, that's a tough road to hoe to be a full-time activist and going after, you know, a lot of these dolphinariums, these, these dolphin zoos, they're run by giant corporations, you know, with lots of power and influence. So, you know, that's, those are tough people to go against. Right. Shooting documentaries and shooting movies are so, it's so such a different, such a different world. A lot of times when I'm underwater and I'm shooting stuff, even with a GoPro, I kind of I get lost. Like when I'm trying to film something or mm -hmm. chase a fish, mm -hmm. like I'll get lost in the shot that I'm trying to get. Yeah. I'll forget about <laughs> my surroundings. Yeah. I'll forget about like when I was in I was in the Cayman Islands. Shoot. You don't want to make a killfee. Right. Like a what? A killfee. A killfee? Kill yeah. What's that? You know, those people who keep like they're doing a selfie and they fall off the cliff. And they die. There's like a whole series of like there's like 20 something deaths a year now that's a thing yeah well, it's totally a thing oh my god so when you brought that up i thought well you're talking about there's all these people who die doing selfies but right. you're talking about just getting so caught up in the shot that right. other things are happening around that you know that maybe uh, you needed more eyes in your head right like i've heard of I've yeah heard of a war a guy who did a war documentary it was like in the middle of a, a firefight in oh Afghanistan, yeah and he just like completely was not even worried about his safety bullets oh, yeah. he was only worried about getting the shot and he realized afterwards like holy fuck what was i doing no when i first started in this business uh my first like five years of underwater filmmaking were like 20 shark films in a row so when uh sharks you know for the most part don't really bite people i mean you hear of the bites and they're super sensationalized because it's it's terrifying to think of something an animal biting us and maiming us or killing us but the truth is like so few people are bitten by sharks that statistically it's not it's not really a thing it's just scary to, right. to think about but when you're working with sharks you're asked to swim close to sharks like while they're doing feeding behaviors uh your 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 odds go up right of maybe having a, a bad encounter and so in the years that you know i've been working i've i've seen some terrible things happen i've seen some accidents happen and I've had a couple of close calls, but to speak to your question of being caught up in the moment, I was doing a scene in, a, in a Into the Blue, which was like an underwater treasure story with Paul Walker and Jessica Alba. It's, you know, it was a teenage thrill movie. It was a fun movie. Um, not a huge box office success, but a lot of water people can appreciate it because there was a lot of time hunting for things underwater, and it was fun if you like being underwater. And... There was a, a scene where we were filming these sharks, like, mauling this guy. Right. And we had a guy in chain mail in a, in, a, in a feeding scenario where sharks were ramming into him, and it was pretty chaotic. And I, uh, my, I have really good safety divers around me that are watching so the shark doesn't get overly curious about my rig or my camera. And they might be, you know, redirecting a shark or, like, just, like, getting me to become aware of a shark just so I know where it's coming from. And at one point, I was like, they were pulling me backwards away from the scene. I was like, well, I'm like, I'm getting a great shot. Why are they pulling me backwards? And uh, then when we came up from the dive, they were like, man, I can't believe how you just stayed composed on the scene while that shark was like dragging you away. 
and I had like a, I had chainmail legs and arms, and I had booties over my chainmail, and the shark bit my heel, oh my and bit God. like the hard parts of the booty, and was like tugging me away from the scene, but I never felt it really. I just felt pressure, because the shark suit, you know, for that type of shark, works. So, nuts, so I, they thought I was being super cool. I probably, if I had looked back, might not have been so cool. Right. Because it was, you know, there were substantial sharks. But, um, so yeah, I was maybe overly caught up in the moment. But Yeah, what happened to me was I was on the, on the Cayman Wall scuba diving through, like, the caves down there. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, these caves you swim through, and you, it's, it's a while before you can find an opening. Yeah, I'm and, familiar with them. And I, was, I wasn't paying attention to my air at all the whole time I had a guy with me, like, guiding me. And he was like checking my hair. Yeah, and some of those caves exit deep. Yeah, and we're like deep. We're probably a hundred feet down. Yeah, maybe ninety feet down. And all of a sudden, I'm out of air. Oh my goodness! And I'm looking at my gauge. I got no air. And I look at the guy that's like ten feet in front of me. I'm like like that. And he had to give me his octopus. And, and I started shooting up to the surface. He grabbed me by my ankle, so I didn't shoot up. And you luckily, probably saved your life. I would have probably died or got the bends really bad. You might be paralyzed right yeah. now. That was like, I mean, that was yeah. my worst experience of that. Yeah, I've seen a few people get bent bad, and it's, it's really bad. If money wasn't an object, and you could do anything you wanted, and, and you had, I guess if you had all the money in the world, you didn't have to worry about ever working <laughs> for money, what would you shoot? What's your favorite thing to shoot? Well, that's an interesting question. I think... Would it be documentaries or would it be feature films? Oh, it would be. It would not be one thing only. No. I mean, there's definitely things I like about all the different films. I mean, I certainly would put some time into doing documentaries to to get the message out about certain sensitive wildlife situations that are close to my heart. Um, you know, uh, right now everybody all the filmmakers are super focused on plastic going in the ocean so that that's not you know we can't ignore that at all but uh you know probably some stories locally i I go after i mean all the things that i would do if i had all the money in the world i'm kind of doing uh there's a there's a couple of stories that i've wanted to tell some films that i've wanted to make that i've been starting to shoot tests for on the side that are clearly my dream project that are there, it's a science fiction story that would uh, take advantage of incredible wildlife uh, things that I've learned how to film and some fantastic freediver friends of mine that I've developed a relationship with how to move through the water and get shots that are difficult to get. Like, uh, for example, William Truebridge, who's uh, you know one of the top freedivers in the world, still probably holds the record for swimming with no equipment to depth you know he swims like uh you know like 340 something feet with no fins weight mask just a speedo and he swims 340 something feet you know down and up and like a handful of freedivers and some of his friends that i've gotten to know i have a science fiction story that would be centered around this group of divers in the water that I've been wanting to tell for a while that I'm starting to accumulate some pieces to do my sort of uh, sizzle sell thing and hoping to hit up some of the many producers and directors that I've gotten relationships to hopefully uh, you know um, I'll get some support that I'm looking for yeah. and then if I don't then I'll have to I'll have to only do it if I get 
to where you said, where I have all the money and I don't have to worry about it. What advice would you have to some to a kid in today's world, coming up in media and filmmaking and with everything on the internet? You know, was when you started. When you 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 uh, you you asked me that question before, and I didn't have an answer right away, and I thought about it a little bit, and I've been asked that before because I'm doing something that I dreamed of doing and I'm doing it now and I'm making a living I'm supporting my wife and and kids well I'm not necessarily su- supporting them but I'm able to contribute to a healthy household that you know I'm doing it for a living and um I thought I you know I'm I'm lucky I'm lucky I have this job but whenever people ask me like about what would someone that's getting into it now do it's so it's so different. When I started working in the industry, you know, I had to find ways to be able to afford a roll of 16 millimeter film and process it. I sometimes shot a roll of film, and even though you shouldn't sit on an exposed roll of film, I couldn't afford to get it processed right away. Or I sent it to the lab, and I couldn't afford to get it out of the lab because I didn't have enough money to get it out of the lab. The idea that you can go out with your iPhone, or you know, if you have more of a budget to go out with these. DSLRs or mirrorless systems now that, that that are making images with more resolution than film did back when we were working. It's phenomenal. Like so many people can just go make a film now. We had to, we had so many obstacles financially to making a film then. And if you chose to do it the sort of guerrilla low budget route, you know you were shooting on you know three quarter umatic cassettes. I mean. We had the quality was so much less, and the gear was so much heavier. And even to get decent, you it was like now everyone can make a film, and they can have they have social media, they have YouTube channels. There's right. so many great avenues and outlets, you know, for for showing your work. That I'm not sure I'm equipped to guide somebody <laughs> in, in terms of how to make a career out of it. But I do feel like I am in touch with a few basic principles, which is, you know, don't lose sight of, like, the reasons you're making films. The story that you're telling is your unique vision and how you get there. There are many different paths, but I feel like a lot of people make the mistake of trying to, like, immediately work on commercial projects and learn the ropes of commercial filmmaking when... And and uh, then a few years go by, and all of a sudden they have a films that make money. So, like you can make a film that goes on social media, doesn't necessarily have a clear path to making money. So, if you're making a film that's you know already has a distribution, or like now, I would think you would want to make films and get them out there, and and you know learn your craft, your storytelling craft, with feedback from your peers through social media or or, like to me it's no time is better than now to like be able to make films because equipment is just phenomenal you can make films for free there's so many different routes to getting to where you're trying to go 